Welcome to Study, Grow, Know, where we discuss theology, prophecy, and current political issues from a conservative biblical perspective. Here's your host, Dr. Fred DeRuvo. If you want to know what Jesus taught, reading the Bible provides us that picture, doesn't it? Whether it was directly from Jesus himself or from those who followed him, correct? Isn't that why we read both Testaments? Because in them, we learn about the prophecies that direct our attention to Jesus. And we also learn exactly what Jesus taught, either directly or indirectly from those who followed him for three and a half years. In the case of Paul, we know that he was specifically given information about what he referred to as mysteries that were heretofore unknown. A mystery, as far as Paul is concerned, is something that was simply kept secret not revealed previously, Ephesians 3, 1 to 9. Paul was given the privilege of revealing several mysteries pertaining to believers in the church. So if that is why we read scriptures, would it also be safe to say that if we read many of the ancient church fathers, we can, in some cases at least, gain even more information and insight regarding what the apostles taught, since many to most of the original church fathers were disciples of at least one of the original apostles. I've included a chart in my uh, blog, but you've also got this in the transcript. It's a chart from Dr. Ken Johnson's book called The End Times by the Ancient Church Fathers, and it shows the connection between many of the church fathers and specific apostles. Now, I'd like to state clearly that I understand that their writings, the early church fathers, were not necessarily included in the canon of scripture for a variety of reasons. So their re- their writings should not be taken as inspired in the way scripture is inspired. However, they can offer support or even additional clarification on specific areas of the Bible because of who they were and the apostles who taught them. In other words, it is safe to say that the ancient church fathers who were disciples of the original apostles were taught directly by the apostles, as we are taught when we read scripture. It's safe to say as well that not everything the apostles taught made it into the Bible. What we have, God provided so that we would know the truth. Studying the writings of the ancient church fathers can flesh out important information. Here's a quote from John, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Unquote. So we have there from John the picture that Jesus taught and did so many things that not one book could could hold all that information, not many books. So it's, it's interesting that we have this information. And what we have in the Bible is what God wants us to know. But there's no reason that we cannot look to those closest to the apostles to find out more detail about what the apostles taught. John's point is that he heard and was taught many things by Jesus that did not wind up in God's word. But none of what John heard or saw is any less important, any less inspired, really, because Jesus did those things. He said those things. We just aren't aware of them. God did not see fit to include everything in Scripture, but what he did provide gives us a grand picture of who Jesus is, his authority over humanity and creation, and the fact that he is God the Son who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death without having his own sin, 
and rose from the dead because death could not hold him. And because of this, salvation is granted to those who exercise faith in his salvific work. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 4-5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. That's what we need to know. But studying the ancient church fathers provides us with insight into what was taught to them and what was generally accepted by those early believers in the first several centuries. Now, if we follow that through line, we will learn that for the first several centuries, things were consistently taught and believed, first by the apostles, then by those who were disciples of the apostles and who were in charge of a number of churches. Things began to go crooked during the third and the following centuries. Why? Well, we were warned about that in Scripture. Gnosticism grew to become a very big problem. And in fact, many trace Gnosticism with the origins of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, while I personally believe God can and does save some within Catholicism who come to believe that salvation has nothing to do with works, the entire theology of Roman Catholicism is built on the lies of faith plus works, which is essentially a form of Gnosticism. Now, if we read Paul's letters in the New Testament and then read some of the writings of the ancient church fathers, it becomes clear that they all fought the same error, Gnosticism, and it began crippling the visible church shortly into the third century, and it continues today, and it's going to be a huge problem during the coming tribulation. Reading the ancient church fathers sheds a bit more light on the actual problems of Gnosticism and how it grew to be such a huge problem, even causing the Roman Catholic Church to come to fruition. Once the Roman Catholic Church came to the fore, it eclipsed mainline Christianity, literally shoving it off the table. That's how Satan worked. God allowed it. People were told that they should not read the Bible because only those trained in understanding it would be able to explain it to them. It was far above the average person's ability to capture. And by the way, this is the same argument that Muslim imams use to keep other Muslims from studying the Quran on their own. Now, it's safe to say that if ancient church fathers gained their knowledge regarding the scriptures from the apostles, well, by and large, the same ancient church fathers would then simply pass along what they had personally learned from the apostles. Interestingly enough, we see this very clearly as we study the church fathers' writings from the first and second century. Now, one such topic, it was a big topic for them, was the end times, and that included the tribulation and the rapture. Many continue to inaccurately portray the rapture, or at least the pre-trib rapture, as being fairly new, you know, from around the 1800s. Darby invented it, then C.I. Schofield took it and ran with it. The problem with this view is that it's not accurate. If we go back to the early church fathers and their specific writings. Now, if the argument that the pre-trib rapture was a fairly modern contrivance, then we would not expect to see any sign of it in the writings of the ancient church fathers. However, this is not the case. And it is merely, it is not merely the, the rapture that they talk about either. 
It's interesting to learn, for instance, that most of the early church fathers believed Jesus would return to this earth in the Jewish year 6,000 on the Jewish calendar. They believed his first coming occurred 4,000 years after God had created in Genesis 1 and 2. So what this means, if the math is done, is that an approximate date or range of his return could fall between 2030 and 2067. Barnabas, an ancient church father, covers this in detail in the Epistle of Barnabas. Other church fathers like Irenaeus, Hippolytus, uh, Commodianus, Victorinus, Methodius, and Lactantius also discuss the same topic, citing that they believe the coming physical millennial kingdom represents not only a thousand years physically and literally, but the final Sabbath rest for all believers. Now, in another book by Ken Johnson titled The Rapture, he cites many references to the rapture, including Paul's first and second Thessal- uh, letter to the Thessalonians. And he also speaks of the order that Paul defines in Second Thessalonians 2. Now, in all fairness to all, the author deals with arguments against the pre-tribulation rapture itself, as well as scriptural objections against it. He also goes back to the first and second centuries to see what the ancient church fathers believed and taught regarding the rapture itself and gleans information from the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures as well. Now, Dr. Johnson in his book outlines the fact that he believes that the first century church was premillennial and discusses the day of the Lord and the day of Christ. There's a great deal here in that book, including Johnson's commentary on many prophecies dealing with the end times and specifically the seven-year tribulation, he takes the time to break things down, making things very understandable. It's well-written, in my opinion, and should be at least considered with respect to the information contained within it. It's interesting to see just how many church fathers of ancient times, the first and second century, were pre-trib and pre-millennial. This would lead one to assume that since they learned their theology from the apostles directly, that they, the apostles, were also pre-trib and pre-millennial. That is, in my opinion, why the Thessalonians were so upset, thinking they had missed the day of the Lord. Paul had to remind them what they had talked about previously when he had been with them. But he chose not to elaborate in his letters to them, except very briefly. So we don't really have that information. Irenaeus believed the following. The church would apostatize. Antichrist would be born in the tribe of Dan. Then the start of the seven years, with the rapture of the church occurring, rebuilding of the temple, ten nations destroy mystery Babylon. Then the middle of the seven years, Antichrist sets up the desolation of abomination, and then the ten nations persecute believers. At the end or near the end of the seven years, the second coming, the establishment of the millennial kingdom, and the building of the millennial temple. Now, another ancient church father, Ephraim, believed this. The nation of Israel dissolved A.D. 132, the Roman Empire divided, A.D. 395, the Christian Byzantine Empire forms that same year, Western Roman Empire dissolved, A.D. 476, the Byzantine-Persian Wars occur 602 to 628, Christian Byzantine Empire overtaken, A.D. 1453, and something about desert peoples become warlike and senseless. The Antichrist is born in the Golan, 
worthless 10 nations rise. And John speaks about that a great deal. So does Daniel. And then the seven years begin, seven years of the tribulation, the rapture of the church, the Antichrist craftily takes the kingdom, Antichrist appeases the Jews by reinstituting circumcision, and I'm assuming also with that the sacrificial system, Enoch and Elijah testify for 1260 days. I find that interesting. It's Enoch and Elijah, not uh, Elijah and Moses, as many think. Antichrist wars from Psalm 83. <clears throat> People hide in the rocks from the wars. Ammon and Moab surrendered to the Antichrist first. And then in the middle of the seven years, Antichrist slays the two witnesses. The temple sacrifices are stopped. So obviously they've been restarted. The abomination set up in the temple. The mark of the beast is implemented. And at the end of the seven years, the second coming of the Messiah. And then the destruction of Antichrist and his kingdom and then Christ's millennial kingdom established. Now, another ancient church father, Hippolytus, believed the following. Jerusalem destroyed by Rome, A.D. 70. Antichrist born in the, of the circumcision and born of the tribe of Dan. Maybe that's why Dan isn't really mentioned in Revelation. Antichrist restores the Roman Empire from four pieces. Seven years begin. The rapture of believers. Antichrist raises up a Jewish kingdom. Antichrist builds the Jerusalem temple. Enoch and Elijah witness for 1260 days. Antichrist wars begin. Jordan submits to the Antichrist. Tyre and Beirut, the first to fall to Antichrist. Antichrist destroys Egypt, Libya, and Sudan. And the ten nations destroy Babylon. Middle of the seven years, temple sacrifices are stopped. The abomination set up. Persecution begins. In the end of the seven years, Christ returns, the millennial reign begins. And by the way, note that in each case, the rapture occurs right at the start of the seven-year tribulation. In essence, they seem to think it would occur just prior to the official start or at the same time. In essence, though, as I've said numerous times before, we don't know how bad things will get before the tribulation begins, do we? We simply know when the tribulation officially begins, things will be terrible throughout the world. And we are certainly seeing that increase now. I find it fascinating that none of these ancient church fathers believed in a pre-wrath or a mid-trib or a post-trib. It's almost like we're saying that anything other than the pre-trib is actually a new invention. So if we pull together all that Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Ephraim, and the rest of the ancient church fathers taught, a picture emerges. Here's a quote from Ken Johnson. Approximately 2,000 years after Jesus' death on the cross, the second coming will occur. This will be the Jewish year 6,000. Now, we can pinpoint the exact day of the second coming if the Jewish calendar were accurate, but we know it's off somewhere between 150 and 220 years. So Jesus Christ will physically return to earth and set up a kingdom that will last for 1,000 years, unquote. Johnson then outlines the beliefs and teachings of these ancient church fathers under the following headings, ancient Rome, the church would apostatize prior to the tribulation, the birth of the Antichrist, toward the beginning of the seven years, during the first half of the tribulation period, at the middle of the tribulation, during the second half of the tribulation, and then finally the second coming. And there are many points that uh, Johnson includes under each heading. And what I find fascinating 
is the fact that we often ignore the writings of the ancient church fathers by and large, yet they seem to provide us with a fascinating picture of the burgeoning first century church, what they believed and how error began to finally creep in. Why don't we study that? So by the time the Middle Ages, Roman Catholicism was literally the only real game in town, and they kept the average person from not only having their own copy of the Bible, but ever reading it. Many were martyred who tried to get the Bible into the hands of average Christians. Once the Roman Catholic Church had lost a good amount of power, it was then in the 17 to the 1800s that people began reading the Bible for themselves again. I would encourage you readers to avail yourselves of the information presented by the early church fathers. Again, while they are not part of the canon, therefore not inspired any more than a dictionary or an encyclopedia is inspired, they do provide a picture of what was believed and taught during their day. More information can be found at a link in the transcript. And I thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you had a wonderful Christmas and I hope you celebrate Jesus every day, not just on the 25th of December. And until we meet again, I pray that God will open your eyes to show you how blessed you are in him. You've been listening to Study, Grow, Know with Dr. Fred DeRuvo. Please join us each week for new broadcasts that deal with theology, prophecy, and political issues from a biblical, conservative perspective.